young people who go to university, being an architect isn't as cool or as exciting as being a software designer. We have a hell of a problem in finding good engineers to design the structure for our buildings or for lighting design or heating and ventilating designers. And uh, why? Well, because it's a lot more fun if you're an engineer to go work for Google. This is Vladimir Bosanets. I'm the co-founder and publisher of The Registry and your host of The Real Perspectives podcast. On the show today, I have an honor to speak with Patrick McClamey, who led global architecture and engineering firm HOK from its San Francisco office. Patrick started at the firm as a junior designer and eventually became its CEO, witnessing the firm's growth from a single Midwestern office to 27 locations across the globe, offering architecture, interiors, engineering, planning, and more. McClamey joined HOK St. Louis in 1967, then helped establish the firm's San Francisco outpost in 1970, later becoming managing principal of that office and then the firm's CEO in 2016. McClamey led many signature projects at HOK, including Moscone Center in San Francisco and King Khalid International Airport in Saudi Arabia. Over the years, he worked as a designer, project manager, and even marketer at HOK, soaking up knowledge of all three disciplines. Trained as an architect, McClamey is a self-taught executive who attributes his success to his ability to communicate clearly and his interest in boring things like financial metrics and digital standards that architects often ignore. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Patrick, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm excellent. Where do we find you today? Where are you? I'm in uh, Northern California, just north of San Francisco in Marin County. Excellent, excellent. And I suspect uh, the weather has been getting nicer and nicer here in uh, these uh, mid-April days of uh, 2021. It's wonderful spring. I'm looking out my window actually at a forest of green, and there are two deer. Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. I'm right at the edge of the urban-rural interface, uh, which is uh, how I like it. Excellent, excellent. You're uh, very similar to the way I am too. We we uh, our house is right next to sort of a green belt. Our you know here on where where you know we are just north of Seattle. I don't see deer, but I do sometimes see coyotes out, out of my window, which is interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, well, it's a real pleasure to have you here on our podcast this morning. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I always ask our guests to give us a little bit of an introduction sort of who they are and I and I think it's always you know best when it's uh, you know told by the by the subject rather than me reading somebody's bio so I'll ask you also if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit of a of a background you know who you are what 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 you did and sort of how the you know winding road of uh, your you know career kind of led you to where you are today sure well I'm an architect and I practiced architecture for 50 years exactly to the day Okay. <laughs> All in one firm called HOK, Helmut Zabata and Kassebaum. And I started as a junior designer straight out of college, out of grad school, uh, in a 50-year career, rose to become the CEO and chairman. Saw the growth of the firm from one office in St. Louis, Missouri, where the firm was founded, to um, a very large international firm with uh, 27 locations and 
in major cities around the world and about 4,000 projects a year. So that was quite a journey. And I wrote a book about it um, after I stepped down. I didn't retire. I repurposed <laughs> Okay, <laughs> my experience. And I wanted young architects and young any anybody that's interested in having a building a firm, a, a professional service or a design firm to know something about, well, what are the things they don't teach you in school? Yeah, yeah. I've spent uh, three years after I stepped down writing the book. And now I'm beginning work on a second book, which will be uh, about building smart, which is a strategy to uh, to use digital information to uh, design better buildings and infrastructure. So the built environment, basically. Yep. And I got into architecture because my grandfather was a carpenter and he loved to he, he built houses for people and he drew the house plans at his kitchen table. And I was fascinated by that and always wanted to do what my grandfather did. So he let me draw the house plans uh, for him a little bit. And uh, I told my parents I wanted to be a carpenter when I grew up. And only later did I understand that the person who did the drawing was an architect. So that's how I got started. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a neat story. So part of your, the reason I guess you're in Northern California is you led the HOK office in San Francisco. Tell us about your arrival to San Francisco. This was in 1970, if I'm not mistaken. This was an interesting time for San Francisco in general. So, you know, tell us about kind of how, how that transpired. Sure. Well, uh, as I said, I started in St. Louis, which is where HOK was founded. Yep. Two German-Americans and one Japanese-American, Gio Obato, who's the O, who actually was from San Francisco, but got pushed out of, out of California with the advent of World War II. He was a college student at Berkeley, and when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, he was forced to either go to the camps, the, the detention camps for Japanese-Americans, or, or continue his education but he had to leave California. Oh, wow. Only school that would take him was little private university, Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, where uh, they took him in, they accepted him, and he got out one day before being sent to the camps. And uh, he's still, he's the only one of the founders who's still living. He just celebrated his 98th birthday. That's amazing. Wow. He is the man who hired me. A fantastic man. Just came from a long line of uh, of artists and artisans back in many generations in Japan, but uh, wanted to design everything. Uh, his idea was uh, there is no such thing as a bad project. Every project is an opportunity and and uh, dress rehearsal for the next project. So uh, it was part of that strategy that led to the growth of HOK and. Uh, the, the partners, the original founders, always wanted to grow the firm to be multiple offices uh, as a strategy to diversify the firm geographically. And uh, when they had that debate about uh, which city to expand to from St. Louis, the, the his two partners, one wanted the office to be in the office to be in New York City, the other one wanted Los Angeles, which was the emerging big city of the West. And Dio said. No, we're going to go back to the city I get kicked out of. 
what's really interesting, and, and I and I have to be honest here, Patrick, is I was I was born in 1971, which is going to make you chuckle here. I was born a year after after you know you you, you started in the in the in the industry, but 1970s San Francisco was sort of a not necessarily kind of like a major metropolis in the country, if I understand this correctly. And I and I know this also from, you know, some advertising firms that were based in San Francisco that, you know, later on became, you know, legendary. But at the time, it was kind of like a, you know, a bit of a backwater, if you will, of kind of economic activity, right? I mean, New York and LA, like you said, in Chicago were sort of the focal points if 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 I'm if I'm not you know mistaken and uh likely Detroit and you know you know cities like you know Philadelphia and Baltimore and places like that right so yeah. tell me is that is that accurate is that a, is that a good way to kind of describe it it is i mean san francisco was beautiful you're correct san francisco began as a as a gold rush town and then a shipping center because they're of the bay a natural harbor but by the time I arrived in 1970, San Francisco's shipping days were over. People figured out, oh, if you're going to take a ship across the Pacific, why land at San Francisco when you can go across San Francisco Bay and dock at Oakland? And then you'll have rail connections and so on to the rest of the country. Right. San Francisco was really a city divided in half. Uh, Market Street was the dividing line. Market's the kind of the main street of town leading from the ferry building up to Twin Peaks. And on the north side, that was the the well-off side. There were financial institutions, and at that time, banking was a fairly big industry in the town. Uh, Bank of America was one of the largest banks in the country, and it was headquartered and founded in San Francisco by an Italian-American family. So banking was big in insurance. But the south side of Market Street was almost a wasteland. The shipping business had declined, and so there were a lot of old, broken-down warehouses and not very nice tenements where people lived. It was a bifurcated city. Yeah. Whatever, whatever commercial real estate there was was on the north side of Market. And Market Street itself was torn up completely from one end to the other because they were installing the BART train, the Bay Area Rapid Transit. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, Market Street was almost, um, you couldn't actually drive, you could walk with with care. <laughs> yeah. And um, Oakland was a kind of pale reflection of San Francisco. I'm, uh, I'm going to say a grittier city. Sure. And, and San Jose, where Silicon Valley is now, San Jose, the South Bay, was quite sleepy, actually. Yeah. So there were still prune orchards in the area now where, where Silicon Valley is. So it was quite quite a different place than it is today you're you're right much quieter much sleepier and uh i remember uh, people saying well the thing we have going for us is a, we're a beautiful we have a beautiful harbor but the shipping's gone we also have two great universities stanford and berkeley and actually it was stanford and the activities that were around stanford and uh that led to the creation of the of what is now Silicon Valley. Um, and a lot of the brain power that came out of those two universities actually led to this just explosion of work, uh, of, of activity, to shrink the, the, the silicon chips and, and create these, these companies that are now you know, global companies like Apple and uh, Google and so on. But yeah. all of that in the future. 
we, in fact, when we first arrived in San Francisco to set up our new office, we could get no work. San Francisco architects treated us like the carpetbaggers from St. Louis. (laughs) We literally ended up, our first projects were not at all in the Bay Area. They were in Alaska. There was the, 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 the oil pipeline was under construction from Prudhoe Bay down to a port in Valdez. And Alaska was awash with money. Every town and every, every uh, Eskimo village had money to spend. And they wanted a new gymnasium or a new school or a new hospital. And uh, we actually, for three years, we survived by doing work in Alaska. So um, it was an odd way to begin a new office. We, we had an office in San Francisco, a, a little, little storefront office. With, I think uh, at first seven people, and then then we doubled and so on. But all of the work was was an airplane right away in Alaska. Yeah. So Patrick, I think what's very interesting to me about how you're describing your start in the Bay Area. You know, my wife and I founded our little business also in San Francisco, and I can tell you our first two, three years were probably very similar to the way you were treated by some of the local businesses. Yeah. It, it is interesting for uh, for a place that's so entrepreneurial and kind of, you know, challenges people and celebrates that entrepreneurship. It's not always kind to, to entrepreneurs, <laughs> I have to say, but, but that's okay. That's okay. It makes us sort of smarter, I suppose, right? Yes, I, I think it did. Um, the challenge of it was to be thought of as a local firm. Yeah, and it took us probably five years of just patient uh, work to establish ourselves and get to be known. Yeah, and it's really interesting. Most, almost all of the firms that were here and working when we arrived are gone. The only one that actually there were two. Uh, SOM had an office in San Francisco and still does a very fine office, and uh, Arthur Gensler was just beginning yep. his. Uh, firm. And uh, we got to know each other personally very well, competed many times, collaborated a few times, uh, HOK and Gensler, yeah, yeah. most notably on the the head, new headquarters for Levi Strauss and Company, which is a, a really fine cluster of buildings at the base of Telegraph Hill. Yeah, yeah. Most of the other firms have come and gone. Other firms have taken their place, but that is the, that's, it's a, I guess it's a dynamic mix it's it's not always the most stable place or the most friendly place for design firms. Um, you've got to have patience and maybe some grit. <laughs> I was just going to say that some true grit, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So that's a that's a good segue. I mean, I actually wanted to talk about some of that because that 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 patience is, I think, you know, very necessary to be successful. Also, I think it was a market that, and I think now it was, but still is that you know perhaps when the ups and downs happen throughout the national economy, maybe the ups are higher and the lows are lower, perhaps, I would argue, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yes. How did you, uh, you know, navigate through, you know, several, you know, recessions <laughs> since since yes. the 1970s? Tell us about sort of how, how the city has evolved and, you know, how your firm evolved with it. Yes, that's an excellent question. Um, because I think in my 50 years, we had two or three downturns. We also had 9-11, which was a shock to the whole country uh, with the bombing of the World Trade Center. And we had a period in the, in the late 70s, early 80s, 
huge inflation, which was devastating. How do you design a building for someone when the cost of the building is going up one and a half percent per month? We had to be adaptable. Yeah. Uh, uh, we had to learn how to do what's called fast track design, where we're designing the building and the contractor's already digging the, found, uh, for the hole for the foundations and to compress or shorten the cycle of from design through the end of construction just because inflation was eating up uh, so much profit. The other thing we did is uh, HOK was always built on the idea that don't specialize in one type of building. Right. Yep. You don't just design schools or office buildings. You design, in our case, everything, airports and hospitals and convention centers and so on. So um, our diversity is what kept us going when the city had its ups and downs. And diversity included, we got in on the ground floor, literally, of the Silicon Valley boom. It, it's, a, it's a very good story, but a company called Xerox yeah. <laughs> created, created a research center, funded a research center uh, just outside the Sanford campus um, called PARC. The, the PARC was an acronym. Yeah, yeah, yeah. P-R-A-C, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, that's right. Palo Alto Research Center. That's it. And um, and hired the best brains they could, and they were focused on making better copiers. And inside of that building were people like Steve Jobs, who's the founder, co-founder of Apple, yep. and others. And Park was actually responsible for the first mouse. Right. And... Uh, and uh, the graphical user interface, where if you move the mouse, there's a cursor that moves instead of keyboard strokes and so on. Dynamic, culture, huge changes. And Xerox didn't buy any of it. They said, well, that's not interesting. It, it doesn't help us make a better copier. So these people, like Steve Jobs, left and formed their own firms out of their, literally out of their garages and formed the Silicon Valley company. So HOK ended up doing many, uh, I would say most, of the buildings for the Silicon Valley startups. And then as they matured into real you know, global companies, did a lot of the headquarters work for these sure. companies. Yeah, We not only worked in the city, in fact, I've often said, if we had just depended on the work in San Francisco itself, we would not have been a firm that finally we grew to close to 200 people. Yeah, We had to have Bay Area work, and then we had to actually go looking for a field for work. So one of the recessions in the 80s, I think it was, uh, was very devastating for the country. We had we had gotten a project to design a new airport in Saudi Arabia. And that that project in, in, in Riyadh, the capital. Yep. And uh, that project lasted the entire length of time of the recession. So we were busy throughout, but not locally. Locally, there was nothing much going on. Right, right. So we were lucky, but I think being diversified, knowing how to design lots of different things, which was the hallmark of the founders, the firm, was a business strategy that allowed us to literally not only survive, but prosper. And um, funny thing happens when there's a recession, Lots of architects are looking for work, 
So it was an opportunity for us to, to hire some very good talent from other firms that, that didn't have enough work. Uh, so that's, that was one of the big things, being diverse, having Silicon Valley, the growth of Silicon yeah, Valley that really yeah. reestablished the Bay Area as an as a economic engine. And then finally, in San Francisco itself, on the south side of market, where I had mentioned that uh, the old uh, days of shipping, uh, it was a tired, broken down part of town. We actually were, were pioneers with the city. We, we designed the Moscone Convention Center. Yep. That's on the south side of Market Street. And it was a city investment in uh, getting some redevelopment work going on that side of town. And it's now uh, led to a real boom that's still going on to this day. That south of Market became, uh, instead of a place to avoid it, be, it became a, the new place. That's right. And now I, I think... <laughs> I think uh, South of Market is actually more, probably more vibrant, and certainly has a, a younger population certainly. of yep. people and um, workers than the North Side. The North Side seems a little dowdy, actually. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you're right. I think the center of gravity certainly has shifted a little bit, and certainly with the Trans Bay, you know, center there as yeah. well, kind of moved uh, moved a lot of the attention towards uh, towards the other side of Market Street. What's interesting that you talked about here, and, and you mentioned um, Art Gensler, and you know, again, another sort of you know um, global design and architecture firm. But between sort of HOK and you know Gensler, and you know maybe a few others like you know SOM, um, you know, firm out of Chicago. It seems like the industry is kind of heading in this direction where there's going to be maybe a handful or maybe 10 kind of big firms and then the rest, if you will, right? Are, are you seeing yes. that trend ha- happening? And is that good for architecture? Uh, what, what's your kind of feeling about that? I think it's, it is happening and it's, I think it is very good. Uh, and I'll tell you why, Vlad. Big firm has a huge advantage. There are some disadvantages, but a huge advantage is Inside of a big firm, you can you can afford to let people specialize in a particular kind of building type or even a particular kind of piece of a building. I'll give you one really good example. Uh, HOK uh, is, is well known for, for having a sports architecture group called HOK Sport. Right. Yep. And uh, that group developed not only an expertise in professional baseball and, in fact, was responsible for the design of the ballpark in, in San Francisco for, for the, the Giants, the Pac Bell Park, it was called originally. Uh, but they had people who were specialized in soccer and uh, specialties in spring training facilities and collegiate sports. There was even a man in the HOK sport who was a turf specialist. And he could tell, uh, depending on the climate, and the location of a of a sports stadium, what kind of grass to plant? Maybe the the soil was salty, or maybe it was extra dry, or extra warm, or whatever it is. And he can actually custom design the kind of turf to use. In that, so that kind of specialty you cannot have with a small firm. Right. You just can't. What the small firms can do that the big cannot do. And I think some of them have figured this out. Small firms are incredibly nimble. Big firms are not so nimble. So small firms can decide tomorrow, we're all going to adopt a new software platform that's going to make us better designers. 
or we're going to become the greenest of the green architects, and we're going to focus on that. So you can take a small firm in uh, in niches and places that the big firms um, uh, have a hard time getting to, but when you but when clients millions are now billions with a B to spend on a big building, a big airport, a big sports stadium, a big hospital, they always want to know how many of these have you done. What's your experience? Right. And um, the small firms really don't have the opportunity for the big work like that. They do uh, with smaller work. but um, And I, I think there's a special niche for minority and female-owned businesses uh, because of the law. The, the law is making a room for them. So uh, there are some very good small firms that are run by women or by minorities or disadvantaged people and that are disadvantaged one way or the other. Sure. But the large firms, uh, if you look at the at the numbers, there are probably 10 big firms. I don't know exactly, but something like that. They probably do easily more than half the work, probably two-thirds of the work. And the small firms do the rest. So I think it's uh, it's it's like this, Lad. How many car manufacturers are there in the world? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe ten. Maybe ten. And how many how many manufacturers of uh, commercial jet airliners? Two. Boeing and Airbus. Right. And, right. Uh, and so on. So there is, uh, and the big firms all have learned that they have to practice globally. Uh, you can't just live on the work in one city. It's, there's not enough. If you if you have an airport expertise, let's say, which HOK has, there's what? There's San Francisco International Airport. There's an airport in, in Oakland, and there's one in San Jose, and that's it. So if you want to really be good at airports, you have to have steady diet of airport work. That means you have to scour the world for airports that are needing to expand or to, to grow in some way. So part of being in HOK is that you fly around a lot, or at least we did before the pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would regularly put uh, probably 150,000 miles, air miles, in in a year. And it was routine in HOK to hear people taking around-the-world flights because they were going from one client to another and so on. So that's the other thing is that what makes a great city, a vibrant city, you have to have a great airport with lots of good connections, and the airport has to be comfortable. Uh, I think San Francisco Airport has gotten so big and so crowded, they've got a lot of work to do to to grow up, uh, have the airport grow up so that it can accommodate the crush of people. That's common in so many airports in this country. Right, right. So, <clears throat> yeah, I, I think, and I know your, one of your focuses is commercial real estate, now, what a great question it is. Now, what is the future for commercial real estate in this world, in this country, and in this world? And everybody has learned, including people at HOK, to work virtually because we had to, because there was no other way. And uh, I think that once uh, everybody's vaccinated and we have some, some uh, the, the pandemic will, will finally abate. There's going to be a reckoning of, well, how much space do we need? Do we need, in, in the case of architecture firms, do we need to have places where we work together as teams? And the answer is yes. 
but probably not as rigorously as we thought before. Right, right. We're not sure that everybody needs to be at their desk eight hours a day, five days a week. And there's probably going to be a much more flexible model going forward for us and for so many other firms. And most likely that desk doesn't have to be in the same space, right? That desk can be here on Monday, here on somewhere else on Tuesday and Wednesday, and then somewhere else again on Thursday and Friday, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, many companies have experimented now with models where their employees, once they're, once they're disconnected physically, they can live anywhere, Yeah, almost anywhere. And they might have satellites in different cities around the world where somebody could plug in at a satellite office and uh, through video conferencing and whatnot, work fairly seamlessly with people in other offices, uh, could be across the country or even across the world. And uh, HOK has actually done this. We've had teams of people that follow the sun. As uh, if, if, if we're in a hurry to design something, uh, we'll start it in uh, we'll start it in Asia where the sun comes up in our yeah. Hong Kong office, and then we'll move to Europe. And then we'll finally move to the East Coast, and then we'll move to the West Coast. The West Coast to the people that are still working when most everyone else has stopped for the day. Right, right. So um, there are all kinds of things that are possible now because if you disconnect people from being physically together, uh, some some challenges, but some wondrous good things too. Uh, it allows people to raise a family or to work part time or to, to share a job with someone else, and so on and so on. Yeah. And I think those things are not going away. I think those things are now embedded because we had to learn how to do this. Yeah. Patrick, during the Great Recession, a lot of people left the industry, or maybe another way to put it, a lot of people lost their jobs and had to leave the industry. Yes. That also created kind of a vacuum because not a lot of fresh talent was coming into yes. the industry uh, also. Tell me, you know, how has that played itself out, you know, throughout the last decade? And is there like a gap now of experienced people who should be hitting that kind of, you know, 10-year mark of their experience? And what does that mean for, you know, hiring going forward? You know, did this latest, you know, pandemic-induced recession uh, cause similar problems or not as deep? How do you see that? Well, uh, I, I think there's been a trend, Vlad, uh, and it's been evident to me probably for 25 years at least, if not longer, which is this. Young people who go to university to, to study something, being an architect isn't as cool or as, uh, as exciting as being a software designer. Uh, or, um, and it's, young architects maybe are somewhat cooler than a young engineer. We have a hell of a problem in finding good engineers to design the structure for our buildings or for lighting design or heating and ventilating designers. And uh, why? Well, because it's a lot more fun if you're an engineer to go work for Google and you get stock options and you get to design exciting software and so on. We are in a struggle to make ourselves relevant. The big firms like HOK can usually find the people we need but the small firms are, are getting squeezed even harder, I think, by this. I was a co-founder some, oh, probably 20 years ago, if not longer, of a, of a group called ACE, 
that stood for architect, contractor, and engineer that uh, partnered with high schools to give high school students a glimpse of what it was like to be an architect or an engineer or a contractor. Yeah. We would actually bring these people into our offices or onto a job site and help them understand what a career could be simply because they weren't getting exposed to this idea of, well, gee, I, I never thought about being an architect or I never certainly never thought about being a contractor. Those are the people out there with muddy boots on, you know, when it's cold and maybe snowing. And, uh, gee, I want to work in a nice air-conditioned office. So um, it is a problem for our industry. And I think uh, it's pushing us toward a number of big changes. Uh, just I'll give you one. I think the idea that the architect and the contractor are separated and that the architect is hired by the, con- by the owner and the contractor is hired separately. They're, they're the, the low-bid contractor. I think those days are almost numbered. Uh, I think much more in the future, the architect and the contractor will be partners. Yeah. If not, if not one company, then partners that will work together to win a project from a client and 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 design and and deliver and build and deliver that project instead of fighting each other as uh, has been too often the case. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Patrick, but this is kind of how it's done in Asia and I, I believe in Europe also. I mean, you have these kind of bigger conglomerates, right, that, that will do things together. Is that is that correct? It does vary by country, but yes. In general, the trend is true everywhere in the world. And even here, and interesting, and, and here and in Europe, the idea that the architect and the contractor are separated has been baked into our laws. So some public sector uh, entities like cities and counties and states cannot hire an architect-contractor combination. Oh, well, no, it's, it's, it's written down here. We have to seek bids from the low-bid contractor, that kind of thing. So yeah. we're going to have to change some laws to allow these new innovations to occur. I actually see a bigger trend um, going forward, Vlad, which is <clears throat> design, build, operate where big conglomerates with money will design something for a client. Let's say, let's say the University of California system, 11 or 13 or 27 campuses, however many they have. Um, I think some big conglomerate could, could come to the university and say, you know, you've been, your, your main job is education and research. It's not designing and building buildings. So what, here's what, we have an, a deal that you can't refuse. We're going to buy all of your real estate from you and lease it back to you, and we'll take care of it all. We'll, we'll upgrade your building so they're more energy efficient. We'll help you master plan your campuses so we can add more space when you need it, yep. and so on and so on. And you can lease it from us, but you no longer have to worry about managing your real estate. We'll do that for you, and we'll finance things. Instead of going out to a public issue, we'll if you can sign a lease, we'll go out and find the money, we'll find the expertise to design, and we'll build it for you. And then after it's built, we'll professionally manage it for you so that buildings are well maintained and the and they're 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 sipping energy instead of guzzling it and so on. So I think ultimately, uh, did you know, for example, that Boeing makes as much money, at least they did before that pandemic, who knows now, they made as much money from 
servicing their aircraft that they had already built and sold or leased to airlines, they still service aircrafts to make sure that they, they're flyable. Sure. They make yeah. as much money with the maintenance as they do with the construction, yeah. with the design. And so I think that trend is going to happen. Uh, if you just think about what people's main mission is, is my mission to operate buildings or is it to teach or to do research or to, uh, or to, or to make shoes or whatever else it is. <clears throat> so uh, I think the world of the architect Design is important, but I think the architect is going to find himself with partners more and more. Interesting. So with all of that in mind, Patrick, what would you tell a young, aspiring architect entering the industry today? Well, I would say, first of all, congratulations. You, you have, if you're a young, aspiring architect, it means you love design. <clears throat> I would tell that young person, stick to it. Don't give up. At first, it's bewildering because... People come out of school with some understanding of design and some understanding of building technology and maybe some history of architecture, but no clue how to operate a firm or how to run a project. So they ha it takes time. But if they stay the course, it can be one of the most fabulous, rewarding careers. And I'm, I'm exhibit A for that. I was able to um, have a career all in one firm, traveled the world designed all kinds of different building types, have clients from all over the place, friends in other countries, and I was able to make a good living, raise my family, and uh, now I'm a, a grandfather. Uh, my wife and I are happy and secure financially, uh, and I'm a, a, I guess I'm now an author. So yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it can be a fabulous thing. If you love design, you just have to Stay with it until you learn the skills of well, how do you use that design to to improve the, the the built environment and the world. You know, Vlad, the world, not just San Francisco, the whole world needs really good design, great design. And I don't mean just pretty design. I mean buildings that work well, and I mean buildings that that serve the needs of their occupants in better and better ways. Buildings that are green, buildings that don't use a lot of energy or maybe zero. This is all coming. And uh, buildings that are kind to the environment, oh my gosh. So there's a whole world out there of need, uh, and we're not delivering it well enough yet for the people in our, in our society. Uh, the world needs us, and we need to get better at what we do. Patrick, you had mentioned to me in our prep call a uh, personal story when you were young, starting out or wanting to start out in the industry. And you reached out to somebody that didn't uh, want to speak with you. Tell me, tell tell our listeners that anecdote, please. That story uh, I'm going to tell it did shape my life. When I was in high school, there were no architects in my town. I had I was thinking of enrolling in university as an architect, but I really didn't know what architects did exactly, except for my grandfather drawing floor plans at his kitchen table. So there was an architect in the bigger town next door. And I phoned him up, high school boy, said, Dear Mr. Flippo, you know, I'm a high school student. I'm going to enroll, I think, as an architect, but I'd just like to interview you to understand better what an architect does. And he turned me down flat. He said, basically, kid, I don't have time for you. And uh, I know it's tough, but that's, that's the way it is. And uh, 
don't bother me, goodbye. So I got turned down flat, and it really, uh, it really bit deep into me. And I resolved then, if I ever get in a position to help a young person understand something about architecture, to decide to become one or how to make the next step, I would never turn them down. And uh, I've held true to that for 50 plus years now. And uh, writing my book was actually a big part of that because it's, it's the things you didn't learn in school about what it's like to practice architecture and where we're going as a profession. And uh, that's why I, I love to talk to people like yourself, Vlad, that you give me the chance to help other young people make that decision or learn something about this wonderful profession. And you're not, you know, I will never turn anybody down. I still don't to this day. Well, and because of that, I think the world is a better place, Patrick. So thank you for that. Thank you for your time. And uh, stay safe and be well. Okay, Vlad. I've really enjoyed speaking with you today. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to The Real Perspectives Podcast. Stories like these help us shape our understanding of the industry. And we appreciate you taking the time to listen to it. Please follow us on any app where you get your podcasts and tell your colleagues about us. Thank you in helping us spread the word about our work and the industry that is changing the face of business.